Friends, in this next episode of the podcast, I am bringing to you someone that I met very recently in September of last year at the Poshmark conference. Of course, you know, you meet people at conferences and you never really know their story. But this woman, I definitely got to know her and I found her to be super inspiring, a courageous lady, someone who has been through the ringer and is trying the best to do whatever she can to bring progress into what she does. Her name is Crystal C. Romero. She's an American hero. She's a pain in the activist. She's a veteran advocate, Save a Warrior and Heroic Hearts Project alumni. Someone you do not want to mess with, somebody who's a badass. And I definitely, definitely want you all to get to know her so much more through this next two episodes that we do for her. It's a two-parter because there's a lot of really good information that you're going to learn. After I watched the the Vanessa Guillen documentary, after knowing her story, I needed to know more about what goes on inside the military, inside the Army and uh, what role, you know, we we can take to help um, people like Crystal who are fighting the army for restitution of of uh, of their of their record. She is a master sergeant. She retired after 16 and a half years in the U.S. Army National Guard. She served full time active duty operational support and mostly in her state of uh, in her home state of New Mexico. Today, she's an activist for veterans' causes and has a significant role in passing legislation related to military sexual assault and veterans' mental health. She's got so many awards, I need to tell you about them because they're super important. She has the Meritorious Service Medal, the Army Commendation Medal three times, Army Achievement Medal four times, Reserve Overseas Service Ribbon, the National Defense Service Medal, the Non-Commissioned Officer Professional Development Ribbon three times, Army Service Ribbon, and the Global War on Terrorism Service Medal. Again, she's a pain in the activist, someone I want you all to get to know. This month of March is a big month for women, but I want to bring women who are doing things in a different way. And she's got a GoFundMe account that I'm also going to be linking here because she's also... Uh, trying to get her her military record fixed and in order for her to be able to do that she needs money to pay for her legal fees Uh, she's been doing this for years guys she's been trying for years and years to get them to do the right thing and until recently she retained an attorney she used all her savings and I'm hopeful that this will give you all an idea of what she's working towards and how we can help her um and so I'm like I said I'm going to link her GoFundMe account here it's a legal fees for MSG, R, retired Crystal Romero. And so definitely it's going to be on here. And I want you all to get to know her and tell me what you think about her story. And if it inspires you to donate to her, please feel free to do so. I'm hoping that this um, brings light to some of the things that are going on in the military and the things that women have to face in order for them to, to be heard. So listen in on that one. Let me know what you think. And uh, here it is. Enjoy. Tell us a little bit about you and just tell, tell my listeners a little bit about your story and kind of your background. Well, again, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I'm sure I'm happy to share um, my story with you um, and, and, and others. Um, my name is Crystal Romero. I'm from New Mexico. Um, I grew up kind of all over the place. Um, I was uh, born to a 14-year-old, so 
you know, I, there's, I, I can imagine, you can probably imagine what it's like, you know, a, a child having a child. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, I grew up in a very impoverished uh, situation. And uh, my mom was very young, you know, she did, she did her best with what she knew. But my mom also came from trauma. So, um, which is why I fell victim to a lot of abuse as mm -hmm. a child, a lot of child abuse um, and uh, sexual abuse from a young age. And um, at the age of 14, I was trafficked to Colorado by a, whom I thought um, I was, you know, this is like 1993 when like chat rooms were real, were real popular. Yeah. You know? yeah, they were starting up. Yeah, like the they AOL were starting chat up in the AOL chat room. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, I, I found remember. a chat room. Yeah, and I found a chat room about music, and I thought I was chatting with a 16-year-old boy, mm -hmm. and um, after months of chatting and, you know, they, you know, these, these, um, these traffickers are manipulators, and they're masterminds, so uh, what he was doing was grooming me, mm -hmm. and after, um, after months of doing that, he convinced me to steal money and buy a bus ticket. Yeah. And and off to Colorado I went. I ran away and I went to Colorado, except it wasn't a 16-year-old uh boy, it was a 42-year-old man. And I was um I was held for several days, but I was also a very clever kid. So I was able to um escape that situation. And um uh, but my mental state was not it was not right after that. Mm -hmm. I was very defiant. Uh, very angry, very, um, you know, just very unstable. I, I had no, you know, there back then there was no trauma-informed care. It was, you know, I got yelled at. I was made to believe that that was my fault. Mm -hmm. I was made to feel that the most horrible thing that I could ever experience in my life was my fault and that I asked for that. Yeah. So I... You were what, 14? Mm-hmm. 14, 15? So 14, 15 years old. Okay. And then um, I became a ward of the state, and I went. I entered the. I went into the foster care system, mm -hmm. where, um, <clears throat> and something that I I think people need to know about the foster care system is that you know it's not white picket houses, uh, you know white house uh, fancy houses with white picket fences outside. It's low income people that are willing to take in children for money. Yeah, and that was exactly the situation. I was a paycheck to some low-income people do they do and background checks on these foster families are there background checks on them and you know how they go through like when their people want to adopt they do like a whole psych test and they go in and talk to people is how, how are they vetted i'm sure that now there's a little bit more structure but you know this is like it's a long time ago and um I can I can tell you based on my experience that those people were definitely not vetted correctly. Yeah. <laughs> um, my foster father was definitely a predator, and so was the son, the oldest son. Um, I was actually kicked out of foster care because I walked in on my foster father molesting my eight-year-old foster sister, and I stabbed him in the shoulder with a fork. Uh -oh. And um, my only regret was I didn't grab a knife. I wish I would have grabbed a knife, but. Um, of course, I got in trouble 
And then mm-hmm. I got I got moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and placed in a group home by a company. Uh, the company was Hogares, and it was like group homes for for disgruntled teenagers. Uh huh. You know the, that was the, that the was troubled teen industry, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's like we like we asked for that, right? Like uh-huh. we created that problem. Right. Right. And um, <clears throat> and you know that wasn't safe either. That was not a safe environment for me at all. So I ran away a lot, a lot. And I ended up joining a gang and spent a lot of time on the streets. Um, I'd get picked up by the police all the time, taken back to the group home. And mm-hmm. then yeah, my first opportunity, I'd run away again. And I was safer on the streets than I was in that group home. And mm-hmm. I was safe. You know, a lot of people, when I talk about, you know, being in this gang, they they think like you know like that's dangerous and I'm like no I was very well protected you know we all we're kids you know we're just street kids mm-hmm. we took care of one another we looked out for one another it's like a family right it is it is and um so my experience with that was not a bad one you know it's actually one of the ways I was actually able to be become safe to stay safe and um, I was emancipated at 16. Of course, I dropped out of high school because I moved. I was moved around so much. When you're in the foster care system, they move you all over the place. So there's like, it's impossible to get an education. It's absolutely impossible to get an education. So I emancipated. I got a job at Walmart and Dairy Queen. I worked there for a while until I was 17 years old and able to enlist in the army, which was my dream. I had wanted to do that since I was a kid. Um, you have my, a, a family member, right? That was in the in the. Yes, yeah. my padrino, my godfather. Mm-hmm. Yes, so my padrino was my mom's high school principal. Oh, and that's actually how he became my padrino. So let me back up a little bit. My mom's high school principal, you know, obviously identified that all right, I've got a fourteen-year-old student with you know pregnant, and you know that's not yeah. really not really right so him and his wife Stella took my mom in mm-hmm. helped her graduate high school and helped her raise me oh. and and then they eventually um after I was born they baptized me and then that's how I became their goddaughter so um but he was a world war ii veteran he's a he was a sergeant in world war ii and he was a prisoner of war he was a baton death march survivor and just a phenomenal human being Mm-hmm. And um, he passed away when I was 20 years old, but I had him for 20 years. And um, so, what happened in those years between 14 and 20? When I mean, when you left your you you escaped, were they not around? I mean, were I mean, they sound like they were mentors for you and like like a, a family? So they were very old. Oh, okay, gotcha. I mean, okay. he was he was sixty years sixty years old when I was born, and lived in oh, I see. a very rural part of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, like population two hundred. Okay. Yeah. So, and you know, I was, you know, they're too old to take care of me. Mm-hmm. I was a, uh, you know, and I was like a pretty reckless teenager, so it was it was too much for them. Mm-hmm. But. um okay. You know, anytime I would see him, you know, I would get like this lecture, you know, like you need to get your shit together. You need to get your life together. You know, like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just a really pissed off teenager. So I'm like, what do you know, old man? You know? Yeah. Um, 
but you know, it, a lot of the lessons and the things that he taught me, like, I didn't get that stuff. I didn't, it didn't, it didn't resonate with me until like way later in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're how- young. Yeah, when you're young. Yeah, we're young. We don't listen to our you don't, elders. Yeah. We think it we know everything. later. Like mm-hmm. things start to really make sense years later. And you're like, oh, now I see what he meant by that or what she meant by that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when yeah. Parent, when you become a parent yourself, like things start to really connect. Oh, yeah. When you become a parent, it just everything starts making sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. That's what they meant. Yeah. Wow. So, what a um, story. So. Okay, so then you joined the the army at seventeen. I joined the army, and um, I, I served in various capacities. Uh, I started in logistics, and I worked in logistics, and I worked in an arms room, and I worked in uh, I did I did supply, so I did that for a couple of years, and then I found out that the military had photographers and journalists, and I'm like, holy shit, I want to do that. Yeah. So I transferred over to a public affairs detachment and became a photojournalist where I did that for a couple of years and while I was on assignment covering a story for a new team that had stood up a weapons of mass destruction team mm-hmm. I was on assignment and the commander you know he pulled me to the side and he's like hey do you want to join our team and you know I had just spent two weeks with them I was covering a story on them and I was like oh hell yeah I want to join your team and this is badass like you know that the, the stuff they were doing right um you know it was, it was uh like emergency management and uh-huh. we were based the, they're basically first responders to uh, weapons of mass destruction incidents mm-hmm. so anytime like there's a um a threat to the environment or the mm-hmm. or, or the people yeah on our homeland those these national guard units are deployed every state has one texas has two mm-hmm. and california has two just because they're so big but um so i joined that team and i was the first enlisted female to join that team and the only enlisted female for about 9 years and that was um an incredible experience i gained so much knowledge training uh we worked with a lot of federal agencies, state agencies. Uh, and matter of fact, 20 years yesterday uh-huh. was the incident with uh, Space Shuttle Columbia when Space Shuttle Columbia went down. Mm-hmm. My unit was actually activated and deployed to Texas to help with the recovery effort. Right, 2003, because, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, February 2003. I remember February. those days too. I was pregnant with my son. Mm-hmm. I remember when it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, it's bringing back memories. Twenty years ago, of that. Yeah. So you were yeah. deployed to to I I guess because it happened over Texas, right? I mean, there was some debris over Texas. There, there was Texas, Arkansas, uh, Louisiana. The debris was it was just it was scattered all over mm-hmm. that region. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, we went out there, and it was such a meaningful experience because. Um, of the seven astronauts, six of them were veterans. Oh, wow. All but one, the female uh, PhD was um, not a veteran, but everyone else was. So it was very meaningful to do that work, you know, mm-hmm. to be part of something, you know, bringing them home and, you know, put it, you know, collecting all the, basically collecting all the pieces mm-hmm. and, um, and also just providing, that was our first national response. Okay. 
Yeah. And, um, but that was just like one of many humanitarian missions that I was on. Mm -hmm. I've, I've worked three hurricanes, uh -huh. Ike, Rita, and Katrina. Mm -hmm. And uh, we provided operational support. We did, you know, recovery. We would help with search and rescue. Uh, we would help with, because our unit specialized in, in WMD and, you know, in Cam and Bio, we would go and assist to help with the, you know, like the, um, the environmental protection agencies. And was it a toxic environment in terms of like um, chemicals or, um, you know, that you guys could be harmed, physically harmed? Or were you prepared? Did you go in there with like, you know, hazmat suits and? Oh, no, we were very prepared. Yeah, oh, okay, we okay, were. Okay. We had over 1100 hours of training. You know, we wow. were trained for that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. yes, so we were um, we were very well uh, prepared for those things for disaster preparedness. So mm -hmm. that was, um, it, you know, like I said, it was it was a, an incredible experience. You know, we worked with the Center for National Response. I worked with NASCAR. We'd go out to NASCAR to provide um, support to do air monitoring, you know, because it's such a large event. Mm -hmm. And anytime we, we, we even worked, my unit even worked at the Super Bowls, several Super Bowls, you know, providing um, air monitoring and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Just because if, if there was ever going to be a WMD attack or something like that, kind of mm -hmm. like what happened with 9-11, they target large areas like that or, you know, okay. large mass crowds. Mm -hmm. So. I got to do some, like I said, I got to do some pretty cool stuff That's and amazing. work with some pretty cool agencies. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then that takes you to, to the next part, right? I think you worked in, um, in drugs or yes. or so, something like that. Yeah. I think that's what I read. Right. So I could, I, right. Um, so while I was on the WMD team, cause I was, uh, that was my National Guard unit, okay? But I worked full-time for the National Guard with the, um, I worked with the Innovative Readiness Training Program, which is the Southwest border. So that's the border, Mexico and the New Mexico border. Uh -huh. And I worked that for a couple of years. Um, when I was 24, I was the operations NCOIC, which is non-commissioned officer in charge. Even though I wasn't a non-commissioned officer, I was only a specialist, but um, I oversaw the operations for the border project. Mm -hmm. and we would rotate units, construction and engineer management pro, um, units to come out and work on the fence line. And also we did like um, the Navajo Nation Habitat for Humanity, building houses for low-income areas. Um, and then from there, I went to work with the, when that project ended, I transferred over to the counter-narcotics program, the counter-drug program. And that, um, I was there for like 12 years, I believe, but um, we work with Border Patrol, the DEA, the FBI, HIDA, and um, state police to obviously, you know, help keep drugs out of our United States. Mm -hmm. we, had a, we have a big presence on the border, mm -hmm. and we help, we assist Border Patrol with you know, drug seizures and stuff like that. Right. And, uh, you know, just keeping drugs out of the United States. Uh, after, um, after I worked that project, I was um, appointed as the state joint substance abuse program coordinator, and I oversaw the drug testing program. 
Mm-hmm. And during that time, I was also the victim advocate for my brigade and the counter drug program, which is about to give you an idea, 1800 soldiers and airmen. And that's, that was going really well. Um, I did really well in that, in, in that program until, uh-huh. um, this is also where everything fell apart for me. I want you to meet my favorite bilingual realtor, Elmer Garcia. You all know that a passion of mine is real estate investing, and having a great realtor by your side is essential. Elmer knows the city of Houston like the back of his hand, and not only is he highly regarded by his clients, but also by the professionals in his field. I can tell you from experience that he is attentive, trustworthy, thorough and detail-oriented. He knows what I like, y'all, and seeks out opportunities for finding the right property for me. His services range from residential real estate to commercial and investment. He will guide you the entire way. I can tell you that. You can email him at elmerg.realtor at gmail.com or call him at 832-512-5752 or you can also find him on Instagram, elmergarcia underscore real estate. And don't forget, anything real estate is his forte. I had a subordinate that worked with me. Uh, he was and a subordinate, he or she? It's a, it was a she. Okay. And, um, and how many I was having years, a, let me just, let me just go back. How many years have you, have you been in the military by then? By the time all of this starts? 14. Apart, you've been in the military for 14 years. 14 years, 14 good years. You've been a part of like some big programs. You've been a part of, of, of some, uh, of amazing, um, uh, I guess rescues or, or, you know, working in the border, working with, uh, with NASA and then 14 years. And then something happens. You, you have a subordinate and it's a female. Right. And, um, after about five months of working with her, and trying to get her trained and trying to, um, you know, just get her to do her job in general. I just, I became very frustrated because she just had a very, I can do whatever I want kind of attitude. And so I went to my boss, uh, was an officer. And I said, you know, Hey, sir, we've got, I've got, I've got a serious problem. We've got, um, we were at our, this is in 2011. Okay. And we were at our highest drug positive rate in five years. What does that mean? And well, in the in the military, you know, we're 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 people. Uh-huh. We have we have alcohol and drug problems just like everybody else. And the military is really good about you know rehabil- offering re- rehabilitation to us because they want us to be back on our feet. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have um, we have programs that we get grants from the state that will, you know, help us to get over our drug addictions and, and rehabilitate us. Mm-hmm. And so my job as the drug testing coordinator is to ensure, you know, the safety of my state. Mm-hmm. Cause you don't want a soldier high on heroin on behind the wheel of a Humvee on the interstate. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because if something happens and he kills a family of four, and, yeah. You know, we don't want, you don't want that, you don't want that smoke. So 
Um, but my subordinate, again, you know, she did, like I said, she just had a very, I'll just do whatever I want kind of attitude. And the reason being is because she is the daughter of a three-star general. Mm -hmm. So when I reported her, she called up her dad mm -hmm. and basically just my life was made a living hell. I experienced extreme harassment, um, retaliation. I was relieved of my position and reassigned to one that didn't exist. And then, um, did you get, did you get called in to, to give your point of view or was it just an immediate, like, it's your fault. It's, uh, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have called it in. You know, now you're going to be retaliated upon. Oh yeah. I mean, I filed a, an EO complaint against her and EO means what? Uh, equal opportunity. Okay. Because okay. my boss directed me to do that. He's uh -huh. like, you can file a complaint if you want. He's like, but he's like, no one's going to help you. Uh -huh. I mean, he flat out told me, he's like, no one's going to help you. He told me that he was not going to bite the hand that feeds him mm -hmm. because here's the other problem. Her brother mm -hmm. was the chief of staff and her other brother was my brigade command sergeant major. So the nepotism that exists in the national guard is it's, it's very much a thing. Right. Okay. And it's, 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 it's pretty ridiculous. And it happens, this happens everywhere. Like this is, I am not unique, Alicia. Yeah. <laughs> Uh -huh. You know, I mean, this happens so much that, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really sad. It is. It's pervasive. And I think the thing that's really, um, that really shocks me or really gets me intrigued is the fact that it's happening so much in, in a consistent way. And it doesn't seem to be being fixed. Like I keep hearing a story after story after story after story. And like nothing ever happens. Like nothing ever gets done. It's power. It's power. You know, you're you're dealing with high ranking officers. It's it's what it is is it's abuse of authority, Alicia. Mm -hmm. It's abuse of authority. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Mm -hmm. And you know, the defining difference is leadership. Because if leadership is doing the right thing and setting the example, then you know you're not going to have. Yeah, you nip you know, it in half, the bud. Half, Half the problems that we have, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, sexual violence in our military, sexual misconduct remains very pervasive. Why? Because there's no accountability. There's no accountability, especially at the top. And the fish rots from the top down, from yeah. the head down. Yeah. What sort of retaliation, what sort of things that they do to, to you to harass you? I mean, I'm thinking she went to her dad, her dad called, I guess, his subordinates and they implement his son harassment uh, her dad son, called his son his yeah. son her brother and then he implemented a series of, of retaliatory measures against you what right. are some of those things that they did okay so for example all my support staff was pulled and now i'm doing the work of four people okay. then they loaded more work on me and um, and then they were reprimanding me because I wasn't working fast enough. Mm -hmm. And then they would lock me out of my office. I'd get locked out of my office. Um, I ended up uh, hurting, hurting myself in my supply room. I was in, I was working really late. I mean, I, I was working like 12 hour days mm -hmm. and I was in my supply room and I was on a ladder and I was getting some boxes down and I'm only five feet tall, I'm like 110 pounds. 
And um, in 2008, I had, I got um, a hernia because I kind of, I went to school too soon after having my twins via C-section mm-hmm. and pushed my body a little too hard and right. got a hernia. Uh-huh. So now fast forward to 2011, this is November of 2011. I'm in my supply room and I'm on this ladder and I was getting some boxes down and I had it like over my head. And right as I was like stepping down from the ladder, I I just, I aggravated my hernia. Mm-hmm. I could feel it. Like it just, I felt like my stomach ripped open. Oh my goodness. And I went to the ER and they were like, yeah, you, you're, you aggravated your hernia. So I was scheduled for a December 6th operation to, to repair it. Okay. So I notified my chain of command that I was injured and that, okay, now I really need staff because I can't do things now. Like now I'm even more. And, you know, they were like, oh yeah, we're going to get you help. We're going to get you help. But like zero help. Yeah. Like there was nothing. And the harassment just continued. I know now I'm having to go to the doctors now. Um, yeah. There's lingering I, you know, effects. Yeah. I, I, and I would tell them about the harassment that I was facing. Yeah. Who um, were you telling? Were you telling anyone I talked to besides the people? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I and no one could help because there was a chain of command. And so Correct. they superseded whatever help you could have gotten. They were going to still say, no, you still have to harass her. How dare she, you know, put a complaint on this person. Right. Wow. That's a, yes. Oh my God. Nobody, nobody would help me. I had a meeting with JAG. I had a meeting with the EO. I had a meeting and even the EO, um, you know, the EO Sergeant Major, she, you know, she blatantly said it. She says, this is a leadership issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it is a leadership issue. That's not a question. But nobody was do- willing to do anything about it because of all the fear, because yeah. of who was involved. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was like nobody was going to piss off the boss yes. or the boss's daughter at that. And yeah. mind you, this 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 three-star general was, was retired. Oh, but, yes. But that influence, there's a lot of influence there. Mm-hmm. And it was just his influence. Did so whether you, or not, like, yeah, even whether or that, not he was, yeah, go ahead. You know, whether or not he was involved or not, I don't know, but just his influence alone, right? Just right. created all this fear and nobody was willing to do anything about it. And then of course she took it to another level. And now she's, she's telling everybody that I was harassing her. And I'm um, like, you know, her, it, it could, it could look like harassment when you're being held, held accountable for your duties. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Especially when her whole career, I don't think anybody ever held her accountable for shit. Did you so know here, she was the daughter of a three, three-star general? Oh, yeah. You knew oh, that yeah. and you still submitted the complaint, but you didn't yeah. think it would be, it would be taken that far. You thought somebody would, I be, knew. somebody would call her up on it and that would be it. I honestly didn't know how it was going to go, but I didn't care because I had to do something. And I'll tell you why I had a female who had been assaulted and turned to heroin and methamphetamines to cope. Okay. So that was the catalyst for everything. That was what made me go to my boss because I went to her and I said, Hey, I need you to keep an eye on this soldier. You know, um, you know, I, I couldn't give her any information as to why, but I didn't have to because it's her job to monitor, um, you know, service members that were in rehab. Mm-hmm. And when I went to get a follow-up on her, 
you know, I asked her, hey, how's so-and-so doing? This was her response. Oh, her? She's a lost cause. And I don't have time to be chasing her around. And that was it for me. I was like, who the fuck do you think you are? Uh-huh. You don't get to pick and choose what soldiers you're going to help. You don't get to pick and choose. Like, you don't get to play God. Mm-hmm. So I told her, I said, I'm going to ask that you be removed and reassigned somewhere else because I need someone in this job that's going to take it seriously yeah. because it's a position of trust. You know, you're dealing with people who are already broken mm-hmm. and they're, you know, self-referring is very hard to do. Right. It, re- it, require, it, it requires an enormous amount of personal courage to do that. Yeah. So you have a soldier come to you and says, hey, I am, you know, I'm struggling with addiction. You know, it's our duty mm-hmm. to get them back on their feet. You know what I'm saying? Of course, of course. So, yeah, she just, okay. She didn't give a shit. They didn't give a shit and they retaliated against you. And then you, you retired in 2014, correct? I was, I was medically retired for post-traumatic stress due to hostile work environment. And that's documented, right? That's documented. Everybody, yeah, everybody knows that. Yes. And so now you're filing, you filed a lawsuit against them. What is the lawsuit about? So I've been fighting for 10 years, Alicia. Wow. I didn't just I didn't just file a lawsuit. Okay. I've been fighting oh, so this you've for been 10 fighting years. Fighting this 10 years. Oh my goodness. I have been fighting this for 10 years. I have been actually I've been fighting this since it since inception of this whole mess since 2011. You know, I was I was removed off of active duty in 2012. And that's when my dispute started. That's when I filed my DOD IG whistleblower complaint under the Whistleblower Protection Act, mm-hmm. mind you. Mm-hmm. but I can tell you right now that that is just a piece of paper and it's not even good enough to wipe your ass with because it didn't protect me at all. Yeah. And so, um, so now what I'm doing is um, I, I finally just stomached it and just retained an attorney. Mm-hmm. And my complaint is that, you know, my leadership lied because during the investigation, they just lied. They lied and they were like, oh, we ran out of funding. So that's why we had to let her go. It's uh-huh. bullshit. It's all bullshit. Wow. You know, I, they denied the the harassment I faced. Um, even though I've got medical records that say otherwise, I was hospitalized several, several times for suicide ideation, for exhaustion, for um, hostile work environment. And, and all of and all of this was a consequence. All of this is that that particular situation. Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yes. So what I'm doing is I I'm 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 still fighting it, but now I have a legal team. So you know, up until a few months ago, I have been trying to do it on my own, and I'm just stonewalled. I'm just you know, the 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 Department of Defense has a has a. Um, a way of doing things and it's called delay 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 deny until you die <laughs> uh-huh. you know they'll stonewall you and they'll just drag things out and because they hope you know, they want you to give up and they want you to go away and they know that we don't have the money to go up against them yeah. so you know i mean I, I it took six years to get a copy of the investigation alicia six, six years, years to get a copy of the investigation yes you know what 
oh my goodness. And I they do I that shit on purpose. They do it. Yeah, because they're roadblocks. They're roadblocks so that you don't keep pushing because they want to tire you out so that you don't yeah. keep going. And they all and they also wanted me to meet the statute of limitations. Because there's there's statute of limitations on all this shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like so like right now what they're doing, what they're arguing is, oh well, it's already been 10 years. Like it's too late to even do anything about this. And I'm just like, no, screw you. Because I've been trying to do this. Mm-hmm. You guys are the ones that are stonewalling me, delaying the process, denying me my rights. And yeah, um, I'm, I'm call- and that's what I'm doing now is I'm publicly calling them on all their bullshit. And I'm, I'm, I'm letting the whole world know like how, the process, because I think it's really important for people to understand why we have such a high suicide rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got a lot of veterans walking around with moral injury. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's betrayal and betrayal mm-hmm. is worse than war because, you know, these are our leaders. These are people that we would go to war for. We would take a bullet for these people and for them to just treat us like we're disposable and like we don't mean shit. Like they don't care. My leadership would have rather have handed my children a folded flag than to do the right thing. Yeah, that is there. That, that is not integrity. That is it's not honor. It's extremely disgraceful. Disgraceful. And it's 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 sad. It's pathetic. And I think that, you know, for those of us who who are learning about all of these, I think for me, the the catalyst for learning about this was the Vanessa Guillen situation here close yes. to my house. You know, it happened literally very close. I know, I know the school where she went to school. I mean, that opened our eyes to a lot of things. And I think even younger people wouldn't know what was happening if that didn't happen to her. Unfortunately, it's like a sad situation needs to happen in order for us to open our eyes and to realize the atrocities that are happening, the sexual harassment that's occurring, the the way that she was denied, you know, the the opportunity to speak to anyone. Uh, She was so fearful for herself that she couldn't even open up to someone to say what was going on. She didn't even want to tell her mother. Um, and her mom knew something was going on with her. I, I mean, I'm astonished that this is just such, it's so pervasive in the military and nobody really does anything about it. And you're fighting a fight kind of on your own. You're kind of like going against the current by yourself. Literally, yeah. <laughs> literally, literally fighting and like trying to stay afloat and trying to swim against the current. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine. When I found out when I went when I found out oh, Vanessa Yin went missing, that was the day I became an activist. That was the day I became an activist, and I have not put it down since then. Ever since then, and you know, if you look at my Instagram and you scroll down to like, you know, June of 2020, you know, if you look at my Instagram, you're going to see, you know, like I had moved on from my life, right? Like I had moved on because I had to. I had to go find a new dream. Mm-hmm. You know, my dream was taken away from me. And then, you know, one day I just was scrolling Instagram and her face popped up and it's like missing soldier. I'm like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. And so I dove right into that. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I found out that Lulac was leading the charge. So I called up Lulac and I said, hey, this is who I am. And I know exactly how this shit works. Mm-hmm. And I got appointed to the national committee. Mm-hmm. for military and veteran uh, veteran legislative affairs and you know we we worked very hard a lot of us there's a lot of people that worked very hard on that legislation and um in 2021 
the Military Justice Improvement and Increasing Prevention Act, which was in conjunction with the Vanessa Guillen Act was passed. And then I also led a national campaign for the Brandon Act, which is a suicide prevention bill that will allow service members to self-refer to the hospital without getting punished because that's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I self-referred myself because I was experiencing suicide ideation and I was punished. I was kicked out of the army. They said, oh, you're not fit for duty. And I'm like, well, you fuckers are the one causing the mental breakdown. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, screw you. So. They um, cause it. You, they caused you it. suffer for it. And then they punish you because they made you suffer. And how dare you, you know, go in there. And, and, and blame us or whatever. I don't know. That's so, sounds so stupid. Right. And my message just, to them is how dare them. you disrespect my service? And how dare you disrespect your service? 